Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. This is episode 67. And my guest today is Darnell Phillips. In 1991, Darnell was 19 years old when he was sentenced to 100 years in prison for raping and brutally beating a 10-year-old girl in Virginia Beach in the United States of America. In 2015, the Innocence Project, based at the University of Virginia, found and had tested new DNA evidence that they say proves he was not at the scene of the crime. This crucial development led to Darnell being freed from prison on parole in 2018 after serving 28 years in prison. Let's do that again. 28 years in prison. Darnell, now 50, has always insisted on his innocence, but his conviction has still not been overturned despite the compelling evidence of his innocence due to a legal procedure in the courts that lawyers believe a groundbreaking new law will remove that will allow Darnell to finally prove his innocence. Okay, well look, Darnell, let's go to the beginning then. You're a man who was sentenced to 100 years in prison for a crime that you didn't commit when you were 18 years old. I mean, I... I, I spent 12 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit when I was 20 years old. I, I just can't comprehend what that would do to somebody. Let's start by talking about why and how you were wrongfully first arrested, tried and wrongly convicted. You tell me in your own words, Darnell, what happened to you? Well, in 1990, August 10th, 1990, I was in a, on a path to trying to discover myself, you know, uh, self-actualization. And so one of the areas that I was testing myself in, I had tested it and trying to do sports, but even though I was athletic, I still had a desire for music. I've always loved the hip hop culture. And so at 18, I kind of galvanized a group of young gentlemen from the college and from the recreation center together in order that we could get together and do some collaboration on music. But it just so happens, like maybe on my third visitation to the neighborhood, that day, one of the gentlemen there, uh, his name was Michael Norfleet, he had told me that, well, look, you know, Darnell, uh, I'm going to get you a ride home because one of the guys who was the rapper, he, he had to go off and do something else, you know, young guys. And so, as we got together, we, we just failed to meet like we wanted to. But it just so happened that day, maybe about a half a mile up the road, a young called Cajun girl was raped. And so, you know, uh, when we came, by the time we came out of the house, we saw police come across, cross us, and he asked us, did we see anything? Just so happened, uh, a gentleman had walked by us that he asked for a light for my friend Michael. Michael gave him a cigarette light. 
But when the police asked us a question, we told once he told us what it was, the crime was a, a rape. We pointed to a neighborhood. We just saw somebody walk by us. Later on, the police, they asked, could you stay in the area so, you know, we could talk to you? And they, they spoke with us. And two days later, after speaking with us, after having taken pictures, they told us we weren't under arrest or anything because we didn't have any of the clothing type or any, we didn't, you know, kind of look like any of the, I guess, you know, identification marks. Two days later, I was arrested in Virginia's jail, taken into custody, and I stayed there for like five months only to find out that what they questioned us about, they were actually investigating me about, the rape of a young girl in Virginia Beach. And I had like probably like 11 alibi witnesses. I've had, I had none of the clothing or whatever. But then it, seems, it seemed as if the longer they kept me, uh, my family, you know, they got lawyers, but it seemed like they were shaping the case up to appear just like me. I didn't have any of the clothing, but then all of a sudden, they started saying what well, a person had on, I guess you could say a Chicago Bulls hat. Then they said the person had on a gold tooth. And I'm like, well, I have that, but I didn't have the earring in my ear that they were looking for a person to have. And so I went through a long trial of about, maybe about, let me see, I think about five five months after being, being free from bond, I uh, went through that trial. Then I was convicted with a 107-year fresh sentence. I heard at the time, I mean, I, I, I've read stuff and I've heard stuff on podcasts that I've listened to that at the time that the police were investigating the rape of this young girl and, and I, I heard she was 10 years old, she was, um, you know, savagely beaten and raped, that, that the police, when they were questioning her and her family, they were telling them that they had evidence from you, like a confession, that they had other pieces of, of evidence that just wasn't true. I mean, at the time when she was being told this and her family were being told this, the police were lying, outright lying about you. Is that true? Is that what happened? Uh, yes, they actually had told the victim that they had bloody clothing to which they didn't. And they were trying to just sway her mind and sway the family's mind. Then they said they had a confession that I had wrote out and everything to which I, I did not. Uh, the detective had told me that regardless of what I said, it doesn't even make any difference. He said that uh, you did it. You know, he said, and I'm going to prove this when I bring the girl into the uh, courtroom with pigtails. And so he kept trying to just persuade me and coerce me to really confess a, the crime. I didn't know. I didn't understand why, because I didn't even have uh, a park a parking ticket. Heck, I didn't even drive at the time. I didn't have an open container. I didn't have any type of criminal record. I wasn't in the streets. I wasn't committing any type of crimes. I was just a young black guy trying to do my thing, just trying to, like I said, self-actualize. And so they told her that the person I fit all the descriptions that she said, uh, she wasn't certain, but I found out later on that they brought my picture to her house and they kept pressing it and forcing it. This is from the victim. When you fast forward it 27 years later, she said that she had never seen those composites. As a matter of fact, she said that they tried to get her to do like four composites because each composite that she did didn't uh, correlate with uh, what the actual person looked like, which they were trying to make it to be me. You know what I mean? It didn't fit it. And so they made her do like four. And so they did an interview with her some years later. And she was like, well, I, I don't know what those uh, composites are. She said they said they had a gold tooth. I had one at the time. Later on to come to find out that she didn't say that. That's not what she said. <laughs> That's what the police put together. I had a plastic surgeon come and prove that I didn't have an earring. My ear had been closed like three years prior to the crime. So um, they just pieced this thing together to make it look like it was me. and. I went through 27 years wondering how could they kind of peg this thing up because of so many holes, because I knew I wasn't there at the crime scene or anything. I knew I had witnesses. You know, I knew I wasn't anywhere in that location, like like a half a mile up the road or somewhere. And then I was in the house at the time. That's what I, you know, I, I really didn't get. But I just found out that there was some corruption 
as I began to do research on my own case, uh, maybe about, I think it was 2009, I did uh, what they call a writ of error. And so I began to dig into the files and I began to find out that, the, well, let me, let me take you back a little bit. In 2001, the same DNA that was inconclusive in my case, in 2001, the, the Department of Defense, they agreed to do it. There were only two places in the world that could do it. That was Department of Defense and uh, Birmingham, England. Are you talking about the retesting of DNA sample that were inconclusive at the time of your original trial? So that was now discovered and going to be retested. Yes, yes. And so once they retested it, they discovered that it wasn't mine. As a matter of fact, they said from mitochondrial evidence from the mother's side that that person would have to probably their mother would have been like mixed, like half, half, actually, not just a little bit, but half. And my mother, she, she's not. <laughs> and so the thing is, they tested that. That excluded me, but they just kept hindering the process. You know, they would, the, when I sent things in the court, the prosecutors would get a hold of it and they would send it back to me, say I didn't fill out the forms correct. And then my lawyer, you know, he just didn't understand at the time because DNA wasn't as strong as it is now in excluding people, you know. They hadn't developed that far in the technology. And so when you look at it, once I started digging myself, I began to discover that for five years, the prosecutors on the case, they kept having sending private emails telling them to destroy the evidence in my case. And I was wondering, why would they do that? I found these out privately as I began to do my own uh, pro se work. So you're you're 18 years old. You get uh, arrested. You get accused of committing a crime. The victim is unsure about who the perpetrator is. And and that's understandable from from a 10 year old girl, although the police told them lies. You then go on trial and the jury. It was a jury trial. Right. So the jury listened to the police put forward this fabricated evidence. You obviously and your defense team challenged that evidence and the information you presented an alibi you presented evidence that that undermined the prosecution case you didn't fit the description you weren't wearing the clothes that were identified at the time and yet you were still convicted why do you think that you were convicted despite all the overwhelming information and evidence darnell that was clearly pointing towards your innocence i believe uh when i when i look at it Virginia Beach had never experienced such a, a heinous crime before. And it just so happened I was one of one young man out in that area, near that area, right? And for some reason, it's just that they just picked me up. And then started that process, they continued it on, you know, by one rogue detective, you know, which is not uncommon. Misidentification, that's that's quite known these days, but I just believe that through one by one rogue detective, he just wanted to continue on the lie. And that lie kind of snowballed into 27 years. 27 years is a long time to be fighting your innocence. Now, I'm not going to ask you that obvious question that everybody likes to ask. How do you feel at the time that you were mm-hmm. wrongly convicted? Because I know what that feeling's yes, like. And it, it works differently for different people. You you take and process that in a different way, and that's going to be dependent on your personality and character. But what I do want to know, Darnell, is how how you managed to go along in prison for 27 years, knowing that you hadn't committed this crime. What were the things that you were trying to do in those years, if anything, to prove your innocence, to try and get and win back your freedom? Because I was so young, I didn't understand the legal terminology. And so I made it a goal that I realized that because I'm not there behind something I did, there has to be some other reason. And so therefore, I never really believed that I was going to stay there. You know, I would never really unpack. What I would do is I aimed all my goals and my energies towards going to the law library, reaching out to a lot of groups that they would assist people who were wrongfully convicted. And I would just, you know, I had my family doing some research. My mother would go to the scene of the crime. She would take pictures. You know, she would just 
do it independently. You know, I did everything I could and put my energy into it. We would hire a lot of lawyers to which we spent like, like hundreds of thousands of dollars to get things investigated, get things back in court to no avail. And so I just spent a lot of time reaching out to people that could assist me. The only people that really were able to get down to uh, brass tacks was the Innocence Project in UVA. And I didn't run into them until 2008. And they really fought for me. Before you ran into the Innocence Project, and everybody I hope around the world is familiar with the various different innocent projects that work across the world to help people who have been wrongly convicted, at least investigate their cases. Mm -hmm. In the time that you were in prison, and what you were in prison for is a hideous crime. I mean, how was you treated during your time in prison, despite the fact that you knew you were innocent and people that believed in you knew you were innocent? Was it a tough time, at least initially, and or you were able at least to establish yourself? I mean, what was it like for you in that beginning when you were convicted of such a hideous crime and therefore looked upon as, as some kind of monster or beast who did such a horrible crime at such a young age? The only issue I've ever had, Raphael, and this is to be honest, was when I was in jail because they plastered my face all over the news. And, you know, when you're coming straight from jail and you don't know that, you know, you have guys from all over different cities. And so I was in the jail and it was an older gentleman. There. He saw me on the news and he was like, well, you know, when the time comes, when the phone time come, I'm going to get your time. Uh, when it comes time to eat, you're not going to eat. And I was like, well, at the time I was I was spending my summer summer uh, training for boxing. So I really was afraid of that. <laughs> but, you know, it was something that I was a person that was very strong nature. I know I was a likable individual. so. A lot of guys, once I explained it to a lot of guys, what I, what I believe was going on, a lot of guys really just didn't see that. It's kind of hard. And it's really difficult to trick an inmate, you know, especially a guy who's been locked up for a while because you can kind of see certain characteristics in people, you know? You know, we know we're some of the most intelligent people in the world in the prison systems, some of the most creative. And so when I went to prison, when I went in there, a lot of guys, you know, they, they came up to me because the news, I had my, my three-day trial. In the three-day trial, I was all over the news, all over different different states. Uh, matter of fact, some people from New York. And But when I got in the system, guys were like, well, man, uh, that's messed up what you know you got locked up for, right? So I, as I talked to them, guys just pretty much took to me. So I never had one issue. I didn't even have one fight. I can tell you, not one fight. I don't think it was because I was lifting weights at the time or not because I was doing my boxing drills on the on the uh, <laughs> the red yard. I don't believe it was because of any of those things. Because the guys, to be honest with you, I'm a person that wanted to go into ministry at that age. So I said to myself that if I'm going to be here, I'm going to develop myself like I wanted to in the free world. I love music, but I wanted to go into ministry because I always love to help people. And so I trained myself like that. You know, I would read, study. And I would put myself in a position to teach guys. I put myself in a position to teach guys. And guys would come to me to ask for counsel, for wisdom. They would come ask for me workout tips when I worked out. And so a lot of times, even the officers, they couldn't see that. Because certain areas you weren't allowed in if you had like a rape case or whatever. The females felt comfortable around me. I would let them know, look, you know, I'm wrongfully incarcerated behind rape or whatever it is. And I would let them know that, you know, I, I can't be hired for the job. Maybe it's a teacher's aide or whatever. And the women would be like, Phillips, be quiet. You can, you can work for me. And so I worked around women my whole time. I worked the staff kitchen. I worked alone with women. And I did not, I didn't have any difficulties in that area. I'm not saying no one didn't think that, but as far as me actually seeing a lot of people just treat mistreating me or saying anything to me like that. I, I received a lot of respect from the inmates. I saw guys who had the same type of crime though. I did see them have a rough time. I really did. And so I'm going to tell you, Raphael, as the news began to go on my case, because there used to be certain developments over the years, uh, they would come up and say, well, we found more evidence in uh, Darnell Phillips case. And so 
when it would come on the news, I would tell guys, you know, watch it, man. They said I'm going to be on the news tonight. But a lot of the guys were like, you know, we saw it, Darnell, but you know what? Man, we already believed in you. And so that gave me a lot of respect for a lot of the gentlemen that I met in the prison, to which I still talk to today. That's really good to hear. People often ask me, and it's one of the most difficult questions to answer, because as you rightly pointed out, keeping yourself physically fit, keeping your mind physically fit helps you withstand the confinement of prison and how challenging that is for the individual, regardless of what's going on around you. The, the challenges that your family and relatives and other people have to face. But how would you describe describe it, Darnell, with, with the experience that you've got? I mean, how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, there's the enormity of having to deal with prison itself and the politics of prison, the, the survival of prison. I'm not just talking about the threats and the physicalness and the coping with the containment, but I mean, knowing that you're innocent and people are saying to you, how do you cope? How do you describe it? What's your way of describing how you cope? I know you said, you know, doing the physical fitness helped you get through, keeping your mind occupied, studying, you know, taking on elements of your case and, and dealing with those elements. But how does somebody cope? And that's kind of a rhetorical question because I'm trying to answer that question still myself. How would you describe it? It definitely stretched me, uh, Raphael. As you know yourself, it stretched me to a degree that I was forced to either give up, commit suicide, or to actually to just endure. And so I felt like I was on a treadmill every day, I'm going to be honest with you. But while I was on that treadmill, I said to myself that I'm not going to allow myself to go under. Depression would try to hit me, but I said, I'm not going to go under. I said, I'm going to develop myself to a degree that me, I told you, like I said, I like to read the Bible, right? You know, and so I read the scriptures and I let the scriptures help navigate me because I realized I couldn't trust the state. The state forsook me. So I said, well, my friends, they're gone. You know, they're gone with their lives. They're going to the military. And so I had to really go deep within myself and say, okay, you know what? Anything I get into, I'm going to have to make this me. And so I was a person that got into the scriptures and I studied the scriptures and I tried to find myself in it. And I ran across a character named Joseph who was wrongfully convicted in prison in the Bible. And that helped me navigate because I'm like, okay, he has an end success story. Even though it was bleak all the years he was locked up, when he came out, he went from prison to palace. I said to myself, you know what? Even though I'm locked up wrongfully, this is painful. I'm watching loved ones die. I'm dealing with eating food I don't want to eat. I'm talking to some people I don't want to talk to. I'm living in living quarters with so many different personalities. And I'm subjected to all the harsh elements of, I, sometimes I didn't have heat for like 10 years. I'm, I'm subjected to all these things. But I do know that one day I'm going to walk out of here. I said, so let me put myself and do what I would do when I'm free. That was, I said, I'm going to study the business. Because if I study business, when I walk out, I won't be surprised. Because I realized that there's a possibility with 107 years, if I didn't get any immediate relief, I would be probably like 70 something years old because, you know, they do like, they don't give you like, you might have to serve 40 years and being, being that young. Uh, I was thinking, well, man, if I had to leave out of here and be 60 something or 70, it was uh Raphael. I just tried to make sure I was doing then what I would do when I was free. That's what I did pretty much. So I, I projected myself forward, even though I was living in the present, I put my mind forward to where I wanted to go. If that makes any sense. It makes absolute sense. In those years where you were coping with everything you had to deal with, the accumulation of different bits of evidence that was, I mean, it was always there. It always is there. It's just a matter of whether you can access it, whether people are prepared to use it to help you. Mm -hmm. Over those years, the accumulation of different bits of evidence and people trying to help you. Can you remember, Darnell, that pivotal moment, that moment where you knew yourself that there was no way back, that you'd found or someone had found 
you mentioned the Innocence Project. Was it the Innocence Project's mm-hmm. work that eventually got your voice beyond the cell onto the, the court pavement, if you like? Uh, yes, it was. I remember in 2008, uh, I received a letter from the Innocence Project uh, from New York, the mother of all the Innocence Projects. And they said, we're going to refer your case to uh, UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia. And so I was like, okay, okay, because I had heard from so many different organizations, and it seems that there was no fruition. So finally, they they shut down that prison I was at called Southampton, and they sent me to another portion of Virginia. When I got there, uh, after being there several months, my father died. That was a very dismal time for me because my father and I, we were close, and my father, he was waiting for me to come home. And so I was sad because I realized he wouldn't be able to see his uh, baby boy come home. So the same time they called me over to the watch commander's office, I thought it was maybe behind some legal work dealing with my father's uh, inheritance or whatever. And so there was a gentleman there, a young, young Caucasian gentleman. He was like, he says, your name Darnell? I said, yes, it is. I thought he was a lawyer, maybe. My family sent for, you know, far as the inheritance. So when I got in there, he said, Darnell, I spoke to Michael Norfleet. I said, Michael Norfleet? Michael Norfleet, I, I didn't mention his name in the beginning, but Michael Norfleet was my main alibi witness. And I hadn't spoke to Michael in over 20-something years. And he said, I talked to him last night, and he told me, Darnell, that you were innocent. He said, as a matter of fact, when I read the legal work, he said, your your stories corroborate together. And he is saying that he wants to do everything possible to help you. He said, Darnell, I don't know whether or not I'll be, but I'm going to do everything to get the wheels turning for you. And so that was like a real first strong glimmer of hope for me. That's when I knew that somebody was really listening and somebody was come help me uh, just uh, navigate my way out of those deep waters at the prison system. And what happened, Darnell? Because you were destined to spend a hundred and X amount of years in prison. In other words, you were going to die in prison like lots of other, you know, black Americans and white Americans and people from around the world are destined, innocent people I'm talking about. I mean, destined to spend the rest of their lives in prison for crimes they didn't commit but you're here talking to me now. So that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. At what point did your case get referred back to the court of appeal? Because I know the American system is, is fucked up. I mean, that's the simple way of putting it in terms of getting evidence back in the court or accessing documents or evidence to, to get a new hearing. Sometimes it baffles me how tricky and difficult it can be, but you were able to get your case back through the innocence project. What was that moment? like and what was it that that finally set you free uh what finally set me free Raphael, is that i'll tell you that day that i was called back into the building and they said i had a phone call from the innocence project and i'm like what what are they calling me for you know uh normally normally you know i call them but so i i, I gave them a call and they were like well Donnie, are you stand are you sitting or standing I'm, they said, Darnell, you know that all the DNA evidence that they said was destroyed, looking for some paperwork, and we for old DNA uh, testing and everything, and we want to go ahead on and retest it. I was like, wow, because all those years, I believe a lot of that evidence had been destroyed. And so they sent it in, and they got it tested. And the very places that the Virginia De- uh, Department of Forensic Science said they couldn't find DNA, he said he found DNA. When he found the DNA, he said, Darnell, he, he told my lawyers, he said, let Darnell know that, of course, he knows because he spent time wrongfully in prison. Let him know that the DNA excludes him. They said the only thing about it is, is that they said that person, we know it's an African-American person because one in 10 African-American people have three uh, markers. But when you get to the rest of the DNA profile, he says, not Darnell. So what they did was they put that in court. Of course, you know, the prosecutors, they wanted to rebut it because not understanding science. A lot of times the judges didn't understand the science. And so what the Innocence Project did, they went and they 
uh, talked to uh, the victim. They went to uh, flew to Atlanta, Georgia, talked to the victim. But before they talked to the victim, uh, once they found her, she had already knew what it was about. That's what was strange. They said, it's, she said, is this about Darnell Phillips? My lawyer was like, she was taken aback. She was like, how do you know? She said, she said, I always, she said, I always, I'm going to use, I don't curse, right? She said, I always F up on God and I always mess people's life up. And she uh, agreed to put forth an affidavit to send to a, who are like the governor, affidavit to send to the parole board. And so what they did was uh, I went to court. They said, well, look, I had to wait still a year after they had that DNA evidence. I waited a year. But I think finally they came forth a lady named Adrian Bennett. She was the head of the parole chair. She said, put in an absolute pardon, but we're going to get him released on parole just so he can come out of prison. So they got me released on parole. And before she left her office, she took all the restrictions off of me uh, from parole and gave my rights back. The only thing was, Raphael, is that it's still like it was still like an ongoing fight because even though I was treated as a person who didn't do the crime, you know, but nevertheless, I still had a stigma because even though I knew I was innocent, uh, even though uh, like deputies and the police officers, they knew it because they started bonding a relationship with me. I still had to give my fingerprints once every three months as a person who's a sex offender. And so that right there, it was freedom, but it felt like, you know, I still had like one, one chain left to me, you know? And that was kind of a, that's, that's still like a struggle because even though when they find you're innocent, they still want to uh, hold you. They still just want to hold you because sometimes it's monetarily, Sometimes they want to save face. And so I would say when September 25th, 2018 came around, when I walked out of them prison doors, man, it was it was a real dream for me. It was a real dream for me because after 27 years, I was finally able to see daylight from the other side. I didn't have to look through a barbed wire or a, a, a metal fence or to look through a bunch of trees because sometimes in Virginia, they had, I don't know how they do, I don't know how they do in the UK, but in Virginia, they'll have you all the way out somewhere like, you know, like the boonies or somewhere. <laughs> and so for that first time, I was able to look around in the parking lot, see my family without uh, having chains on, see my family uh, to be able to hug them without a guard saying, hey, hey, that's, that's enough. You know, I could freely hug my family. And I was freely being acknowledged as an innocent man walking out of prison. That right there meant so much to me because you got to keep in mind, I had to keep my head in the, you know how it is. I had to keep my head in my mind looking forward to the day I would walk out of there. Even when I would get the parole turned downs and the case turned downs, I still had to maintain some type of hope. And so I would say from 2008 on until 2017, when they found that DNA and just that additional year I had to wait to walk out. That was a test in itself because every day I was wondering, when are, when are they going to open these doors? It's on the news. I'm innocent. You know, everybody in the prison, they know it now. They believe it, but now they can see it. You know, I'm like, well, well when is this day going to come? So finally, when that day came, I, I walked out of there and, and you know, here I am, man. <laughs> have you have you since 2018 when you walked out of prison and, and the DNA evidence that helped you get out, have you been able to take that into a court and, and have your conviction completely quashed and exonerated? Is, is it all gone away now or are you still waiting? Because I read something about the laws in America uh, have changed recently, which will give you the opportunity to present evidence that exists that you haven't been able to present or wasn't at the time. Where are you legally at the moment in terms of being exonerated by the courts? Right now, uh, let, me, let me put it to you like this. I had fought with uh, the Innocence Projects to go up to, uh, we have like the, the capital in Richmond, Virginia, where our governor is. 
And so I had the actual opportunity to speak with senators and to talk on the House floor. And so we were able to get a law overturned for the writ of actual innocence, which would allow you to present newly discovered evidence so that, you know, you could get exonerated and cleared. But and this was in 2019, going over into like March, but then the pandemic started. Once the pandemic started, all of the people that I was connected to, all of the senators, everyone, it seemed like everything was scattered. and so. Friday that just passed, I was able to go back up there to Richmond to reestablish the relationships. The governor's last day was Saturday. So I went up there to fight my last minute effort, say, look, you know, we didn't get the chance to complete this. So a lot of the senators and delegates, they thought that by me coming up there and they passing that law, that I was automatically exonerated. I informed them Friday that I had not been. They said, darn there, we're going to do everything we can to go ahead on, try to get this done, get this on the governor's desk, because I have an absolute pardon on the governor's desk. But now they gave my lawyers the courtesy call and they told them, look, we're going to handle the next administration, which is it's now. But I'm still waiting for them to uh, been a couple of days. My, my stuff is still on his desk, but I'm still waiting for them to absolutely pardon it. Also, uh, my lawyers, they're still trying to put some new evidence in court that they're finding out. They're finding out a lot of things about some of the alibi witnesses that they have been sending letters privately to the prosecutor's office, right? And letting them know the whole time they had the wrong person. Uh, There's a lot of little things they're discovering. And so right now, I'm right at the brink of them getting it done, but it can be done any faster, my friend. It couldn't be done any faster. And I suppose equally as important, if not all the more important, is the victim of the crime. And we never lose sight of the victim in these right. cases because there's there's two victims. There's you and then there's the victim of the crime who never got justice, even though they believe they did for X amount of years. But she has publicly spoken because I've seen a couple of videos where she's been outraged by what has happened to you. What 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 is she said publicly about about what's happened to you, Darnell? I mean, is there anything you can share about the victim as an adult now, who on reflection, being presented with all the information about you being wrongly convicted of the crime that was committed against her as a child, but she has spoken publicly. What has she said about what's happened to you, Darnell? She was saddened by what happened because. As you said, she was she was a child, and so she was going to listen to adults. And so me personally, I never held that against the victim. I never held it against her because I was a victim. I was young, even though I was older than her, never met her. She never met me. I realized that I knew some adults had to be behind it. And so I, I, I've never even thought about saying, you know, well, I don't forgive her or, you know, I won't release her from... Uh, for being, you know, forgiveness because, you know, she's spoken out. She actually tried to advocate with the governor's office for me, parole chairs, and every everyone that could get me pardoned. She she advocated for me. She's written letters. She wrote affidavits out. She's gave, given TV interviews. Not at anyone else's behest or request. She did it on her own. She called. She tried to get this thing rectified. And what bothers me is because, you know, before I came home, they uh, wanted me to, the state wanted me to write a letter to the victim. They wanted me to write a letter letting her know that I forgive her, right? Because they were thinking that, well, if a person locked me up for 27 years, I would want to have some type of uh, vindictive motive for meeting them. That wasn't the case. So I wrote the letter letting her know that it wasn't your fault. It's, I let her know, as a matter of fact, in the letter, now, I'm telling you something real personal. I said, I let her know in the letter, look, even though uh, this situation, I, I'm sorry that stuff happened to you. Of course, you know, I wasn't a person who perpetrated the crime on you. And I know that you, I've heard that you had a rough life. But realize, I let her know this. Don't feel sorry. Don't be sad because I didn't waste my life. Even though this was meant to destroy me, I didn't waste my life. I said, I spent time getting my education. I spent time working out and getting to ministry. I spent time cultivating myself 
as a man because I didn't want to walk out of here childish. I said, but one thing, don't hold this against yourself. And so I sent that, they, they sent that letter for me to her. She received it. My lawyer said, you know, really touch her that I wouldn't hold it against her. And she still fought for me, still fought for me. And I asked, could I meet her? Because she wanted to be out at the gate when I walked out. She wanted to be out there. At first, they agreed. But then all of a sudden, one person from the state, they came to my office, Raphael, and they, I'm saying office, my cell. <laughs> I've been out here too long. <laughs> they came to the cell, Raphael, and they said, they said, Darnell, they, they told me it wouldn't look good. I said, what, what wouldn't look good? They said, it wouldn't look good for the victim to see you. I said, why? I said, we know we both, we know we both were, you know, victims in this thing. What is the issue? They said, it just wouldn't look good. I said, for who? They said, Donna, you know it wouldn't look good for us. They said, it just like that to me. And I was like, wow. And so I tried to, you know, talk to the Instant Project about, you know, actually meeting her, right? But they put the stipulation, when I, when I was released on parole, they put the stipulation that I couldn't have any contact with the victim. So I didn't. I didn't. I didn't try to write, didn't try to call any of those things. Now that I'm not on the parole or I have my rights back, just that one thing I do, fingerprints, until they totally, completely get it uh, absolved. I don't know whether we can have contact now, you know, but I'm, I want to, I, I need to, uh, she needs to, because, you know, we've been hurt in this thing. There are two victims here, you know. I mean, now, of course, I, it, it wasn't afflicted on my body, but being in that prison, they have no idea the pain I went through watching people of my family, loved ones, die. When I came home, Raffi, I'm going to tell you something. When I came home, not only, you know, I, I wanted to reach a victim because I needed healing too. I needed healing too. You, you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I needed closure too. They wouldn't get me, they wouldn't give me closure. When I came home, my mother, my mother, she, she passed away several years after I, I was home. She passed away on October 11, 2020 from the uh, coronavirus. But Raphael, when I came home, my mom had full-blown dementia. My mom thought I had been in the service. So I really didn't come home to my mom. I knew who she was, but she didn't know fully who I was. And so everything that I thought would make me whole, Raphael, meeting the victim, meeting, coming home to my mother, who fought so valiantly for me. I didn't have that. So I went to the state to ask them, make me whole. Why don't you just take everything off of me? Uh, you know, compensate me. You know, I, I, I'm glad that I was able to meet people like Jason Flom, who helped me, you know, become a, a businessman and, and having some measure of success. But I still need to be made whole. Children. There's certain things that, I can't do, Raphael. I can't go. uh, People, I'm going to tell you something, Raphael. I've been favored so much in this place, right, outside in this free world, that people from all over, they want me to come to high schools, elementary schools, and everything else. And they know the situation. I told them, I said, I can't because they have this this one uh, 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 chain on me. They're like, we don't care. I said, but I still have to mind that because legally I can't do that. Young people want to talk to me. They, I can't. I can't do it. All behind that one chain, and I put that back to the victim. That victim, she's still going through things because she had a rough life. I can't even comfort her as a person who went through something horrible. You understand what I'm saying? To let her know, not through letter, but look. You know, I forgive you, and look, I want you to move on with your life. Uh, maybe we can build some type of bond. She doesn't have that. I've received a measure of that from people, but she doesn't get that. You understand? So it's like, it's a maze that they put us in that we have to navigate ourselves, you know? And I'm going to be honest with you. I just want to be made whole in that area. I have everything going for me right now. I you know I said business, wife, but I just need that one thing. Just go ahead and make me totally whole. And, and clear my record, you know, clear my record. The victim I want to see for her, I want to be uh, helped so that I can, you know, compensation because, you know, she's a victim, so they don't normally do that, compensate them. 
I want to be compensated because I want to see her on her feet because I know, uh, as you read and, and as you've seen through like little articles or videos or whatever, drug abuse and everything else, mm. I want to see her whole. You, you understand what I'm saying? And I, I think that I, I understand that. And I think people often tend to forget, don't they? Because at first it, it's kind of swings. The penendulum swings because at the beginning, it's all about the victim and then the wrongfully get convicted and imprisoned. And as the years go on, the, the wrongfully convicted are identified and then the victims often for, forgotten um, because the, the miscarriage of justice is exposed and it's all about the the victim of the miscarriage of justice, and then the victim is is often forgotten. So it's great to hear you say that not only do you want your your life to be completed now that you're you're, you're free and you're back in the world of freedom, but you want the victim who has suffered just as much as you to be freed as well. Let me ask you this, and that that's admirable, Darnell, and I hope that 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 comes through. I hope that you know, as the next few months or years go past that these things can happen for both you and, and, and the victim of, of this crime. What, what do you do now? I mean, you've been out of prison three years. I'm sorry to hear that you, you, you lost your mother and your father and you've lost other relatives and you're, you're building a life. That's brilliant. And as you say, um, you didn't waste your life in prison. And I think that's a great line to say that in all those years that you were in prison and suffered, you still you know, took and embraced education and all the other things that made you the man that you are today. What is next for you? What What do you do next now? I mean, people often ask that question, you know, after 27 years, how much has the world changed? Well, it doesn't matter how much the world has changed because it's important about how, how you've changed and how you adapt to that world that you're yes. now living in. Yes. And how are you doing that, Darnell? I am doing that, Raphael, by... I'm living out loud. If I can say that, what I was doing in prison, I told you I was in the ministry. You know, I still would teach guys a mentor. I love that because I love to see people navigate through rough places. Now, I mean, whether it's emotionally, spiritually, physically, I love to see people navigate. I love to uh, pretty much life coach them, right? Because I, I can identify when a person hurt. And I know that there were times that I didn't have the help I desired. That meant something to me because I felt alone. And even the temptation, like I said, to commit suicide, that was present. But I didn't go there. And so I want people to know that they can walk through just about anything. And so right now, that same mindset exists with me out in the free world. I believe I can do anything. And so therefore, I say, you know what? After I saw I couldn't get a job, I say, you know what? Evidently, it's not for me to. So let me let me get into business. As I told you before, uh, things came together where I, can, I was able to get an investment. So I started that uh, mobile detailing business. Now I said, well, you know what? I wanted. I talked to Jason Flom. He invited me to his home in, in the Hamptons. Right, very good friend, like a big brother to me. We were talking, and Jason always trying to. He's always networking. So he's like, well, Darnell, I know a venture capitalist. And so before you know it, I was able to get a, a loan, a, a low uh, a low interest loan. So I was able to get my first uh, truck, which I know is going to be one of many, a fleet of trucks to get into the logistics business. And so my whole strand of my business is my life. My business is called Redemption Auto Detailing LLC. My DBA is Redemption Logistics, which is my trucking company. And everything I'm going to deal with is going to be with redemption, you know? And so I am, I'm just, like I said, now I'm just starting businesses so I can just help other people who are coming out of prison. I want to, I'm looking now to start even trying to, I'm trying to get into the podcast as well, too. I'm trying to get into that uh, podcast and get into vid, uh, uh, videos, uh, get into uh, ministry videos and things of that nature. I've done some recordings. I just haven't really posted them up. but. Anything I can do to help people, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do, Raphael. You know? Well, I can tell you by coming on the podcast and sharing your story is inspiring people because people just don't 
and can't get their head around the fact that a man can spend as many years wrongfully imprisoned as you have and still come out and be so positive about their future because, you know, they that cliche of what don't break you, build you, you know, what doesn't kill you, helps you, et cetera, et cetera. But you are a true testimony to how you can still survive one of the most challenging ordeals, depending on how you cope with it at the time. And, and no doubt, Darnell, you, you have the strong will of a man who deserves the, the best future. My last question to you is, what does second chance mean to you, if anything? A second chance to me means that I'm able to I, I always believe in self-actualization. So a second chance to me means that I'm getting the opportunity to be all, do all I feel that I was created to do in the life of others. Because living a life that doesn't benefit other people is really not a life worth living. Because I believe I was put on this earth to help people. And by me walking out of these doors, I believe that my very breath, my, my, my move, my next moves are to help people. So a second chance to me, to me means living my best life, not a life that, you know, they got the cliche saying, you know, you live your best life, that may be no parting or whatever, right? But my best life is to be able to, as an adult Darnell, as a I'm about to turn 50 on Wednesday, right? But as a, an adult Darnell turning 50 on Wednesday, to really to turn the world upside down with uh, showing love, assisting people, doing everything, uh, developing and, and just putting out every gift and talent that I have in me. To me, that's a second chance, you know? That's a second chance that the 18-year-old Darnell was kept from doing. But a dream never dies. You know, like I do, Raphael, a dream that's truly a dream in you, it never dies. And so I'm looking forward to, I got a lot in me, and I'm looking to bring it out. My second half of life begins Wednesday. It, you know, I mean, I'm going to be 50, so, but, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything that I was afraid to do. I'm going to do everything that uh, said that couldn't be done that people thought I couldn't do, but I know that the possibility for me exists. So I'm going to just, I'm just going, I'm just going to live my life to the fullest. I'm just going to bring everything out of me, man. You know, it's, it's a lot in me and sometimes it's difficult to express it because I, it's, it's an overwhelming feeling, but I'm going to do everything I can to make sure the world knows I was here. And and when you were 18 years old, which you said at the beginning of this podcast, that was to rap. Is the 50-year-old Darnell going to still pursue that dream of being a rapper or is it just preaching <laughs> no. now in the ministry? Is, no, is that no. just one of those dreams that's gone away or does that still exist? <laughs> well, you know what? That dream, that, that portion there, I, got, I wrote like seven albums while I was away anyway, right? I had to learn how to play the piano and everything like that. But I'm a little rusty on that now because, you know, I've been out here trying to get reestablished, but I still write music. And I'm looking, once I get the ministry center, ministry training center up, I'm looking to actually put the music that I wrote into that environment, right? You know, I'm looking to trailblaze something. Really, I really am. I really am. I don't want just the traditional stuff, right? I want it to be able to trailblaze because I don't like the cookie cutter life. You know, you you and I, Raphael, we didn't have a cookie cutter life, man. So we got a trail, bla- we got a blaze trails that <laughs> that the world's never seen before. You know, and I want to say to you, man, that I'm I, I've looked at your stuff, man, and I'm I'm just proud of you because you could have made the choice to say, you know what, I'm just gonna come out, get on with my life, and the world would never know the brilliance that is in you. You know, and you truly have showed and manifested brilliance. You you do guys like, like me and a lot of guys, man, that been wrongfully incarcerated like you and I have. Sometimes I, I talk to some of them and they're broken. You didn't do that. You're still moving. You're still rolling. You're still helping people around the world. You're still exposing things. You're bringing the light and you're bringing hope. 
And most importantly, you're giving people like me a, a voice to talk about their second chance of life. Thank you so much for saying that, Daniel. And, and there's nothing that's going to stop me, only only death. And even then, I'll leave a legacy so it continues yes. <laughs> through people like yourself who are a bit younger. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story and spending time with me today. And, and if anybody wants to find out more about what you're trying to do, where can they find out more? How can people help you if they want to help you? How can people contact you if you want people to contact you from this side of the pond or from your own? If they want to email me, they can email me at darnfill19 at yahoo.com. That is the capital D, lowercase A-R-N-P-H-I-L 19 at yahoo.com. They can follow me on Instagram. Uh, my uh, tag is Darnfield19. They can uh, go to my ministry page, which is Darnell Phillips Ministries. You can follow that. And just saying they want to check me out, uh, uh, Joseph uh, <laughs> uh, from uh, the After Prison Show. And so uh, you can go up there, check out even more of the story on, on the After Prison Show. But I, I would I would definitely encourage people to listen to Jason Flom's podcast with Jason you. Jason Flom's Wrongful Conviction. It, it's a powerful, and that's the guy that brought us together when I first yes. learned of Jason Flom. And it's great to know that there are people like him out there doing what they're doing yes. because, you know, he had his experience as a young man and he's gone on to live, gosh, what a, 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 a career and a life he's had. But to know that he is still sharing the space that you and I share and people like us and people in need is incredible and you need more people like that so thank you to jason for bringing us together yes. darnell yes. enjoy yes. and i wish you all the best yes thank you Raphael. justice for the poor victim in this case is long overdue and i hope that when darnell is finally cleared of this horrendous injustice there is some way of finding the real perpetrator I'm still shaking my head at the mysterious way the law in America in these kinds of cases work. However, the legislative changes that will help Darnell get the justice he deserves represents a major step in much-needed post-conviction criminal justice reform in Virginia. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share it with your friends, family and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description or the show notes at the end. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch. If you want to connect, drop me a DM via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.